You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week, which is Lesson 12, we are talking about creation arguments you should probably stop considering. So let's dive in. So what do I mean by creation arguments we should probably stop considering? I think in order to answer the question, we need to get a broader look at science as a discipline. And I'm not talking about getting into specifics here, but there are some cases where scientists have been wrong. And I think we know this. I think we understand this. In fact, as creation scientists, uh, many times we often highlight this because what we want to do is bring folks back to the truth of God's Word. Because science in the past has always lined up with what God's Word has said many times years and years before. I plan to do an entire episode of nothing but modern science um, facts that have been proven, but that were found first in the Bible. Okay, So the Bible kind of hinted to those things first, and then modern science eventually caught up. Of course, we have to realize the context of uh, you know, cultures and things like that, and what did it mean to the people it was written to, things like that, and that's okay. You know, we can we assess those one at a time, and we certainly don't need to impress things back onto the biblical text that aren't meant to be there. So we need to be mindful of that. But we do like to highlight the fact that science as a whole should not ever be considered an ultimate authority. It should not be considered an ultimate authority because it is often proven wrong. Now, scientists would actually take this, and of course, they say, well, this is a feature of science. We're not being so arrogant as to say that, well, this is the way it is. Uh, We're saying that we're going to keep testing, and we're going to keep trying to figure things out, and this is a feature of science, but I'm not so sure that that's always the case. Um, I'm reading a book right now. It's a brand new book just came out by Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, and the title of the book is Replacing Darwin. The New Origin of Species. Of course, if you know anything about him, he is a Harvard-trained biologist, a cell and microbiologist, and he is um, uh, a scientist on the staff at Creation, uh, excuse me, AIG, um, Answers in Genesis, there at the Creation Museum and other places. And so um, he works with them and does research with them. And he's making this argument. It's a big book, so it's going to take me a while to, pro- uh, to process, but uh, he's making the argument that it's time to replace Darwin. And he's not the first person to suggest this argument. And of course, since this argument is coming from a creationist and a creation publication, then, uh, you know, of course, there are going to be um, setbacks that I'm sure his argumentation will experience from those who, who would claim that creation scientists are just not credible enough scientists. So uh, there's an uphill battle there. But, but, even he is saying now, okay, look, it's time in the in the sciences to take a closer look at this. It's time to get in there and replace Darwin. And, you know, I'm sure uh, the first person to suggest that uh, the sun does not orbit the earth, but rather the other way around was thought to be crazy. But lo and behold, uh, that's exactly what we see now. And so uh, science definitely can be proven wrong with new and better science. And and that's just simply the way that science works. Well, creation science is no different. And 
as a matter of fact, I think sometimes uh, mainstream scientists place a, a false accusations and false assumptions on creation scientists that we don't see it that way. Um you know, I suppose the only difference is that we do have an ultimate standard, which is the Bible. Science is not our ultimate standard. Science, I don't think, can be an ultimate standard. There's just no way, because uh, the nature of science is that it is always changing. As our knowledge grows, we learn more. But the God of heaven has infinite knowledge, and he has already revealed certain things to us, and they are unquestionable. They're unquestionable. And now, if they did not match up with, with what we saw in the world around us, well then, you know, I think we would have a right to question that. But at the end of the day, even if all the science was against God's word, you know, I I just don't know that I could say that I would abandon God's word just because the science showed one thing, because it's so easy. I mean, for years, over 500 uh, publications in papers were done over the Piltdown Man, which turned out to be a hoax. You know, so uh, the bottom line of it is, is that you can say anything you want to and you can make however many people you want to believe it. But God's word is true. God's word is true. And that's why I wouldn't abandon it. That's exactly why I would not abandon it. Even if all the scientific evidence showed it wasn't scientific evidence can be manufactured. The Holy Spirit cannot. God's witness of himself in creation cannot. God's revealing of himself in the person of Jesus Christ, just cannot. So uh, that's where we stand. And I think, you know, that's not really the point of this episode, but what I wanted you to understand is that in the sciences, sometimes there are things that we need to uh, let go of, especially if they're near and dear to our heart, especially if they are arguments that we have found to be effective for us in the past, um, especially if they are... Uh, useful for helping someone to see the bankruptcy of the other position. And I'm, I'm trying to be uh, careful here in the way I word this, but uh, the bottom line is, is that just because something sounds good doesn't mean it's true. And we should not use things that are scientifically untrue in an effort to to win the loss. That's, that's not... Um, that's not a method that's faithful to scripture. It's not faithful to science. It's not faithful um, to God. And so we need to really reevaluate these things. And so we need to make sure that we have integrity when using science, especially as it relates to the Bible. So what we're going to do this time is just kind of go through, um, there are some arguments that I see being thrown out there, uh, some old models that I see creationists still using and, and teaching and clinging on to that the majority of the creation science community has has long since abandoned. And uh, I'm certainly not saying that their word is law by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, you know, if we're going to say that we are uh, creationists and that even as creationists, we are, um, you know, scientifically... Um, accurate and that we have integrity as, as, as creation scientists, then I think we should at least give the creation scientists their due. And what I find interesting is that it's often 
those who are not the scientists doing the work, who hang on to these old models and uh, and these these bad arguments, and, and I don't think that um, that that that's faithful to our discipline. So uh, I don't want to spend forever here, but I've got a list and I'm not going to lie. I took this list from one source. I took this list directly from Creation Ministries International. Creation Ministries International, and I will post the link to this page in the show notes, but they have got an entire page of creation um, models, creation arguments, um, things that we definitely should not be using, and they kind of separated out into two different uh, sections, what arguments should uh, definitely not be used, and then which arguments are are doubtful um, and then inadvisable to use. So, we're going to look through those two lists, and I have parsed uh, the list down to only the items that I feel confident to comment on. Some of them I had never heard of before. I'm not very studied up on them, but the ones that I, I did retain, I'm, I'm fairly studied up on, and I won't spend very much time on any particular one of these. We'll just talk a little bit about each one, uh, move on to the next one, and then... Uh, call it a day. So this is going to kind of be an even shorter list that's out there. But again, I'm going to post the full list in the show notes. And um, and I, I happen to take this list from them because they definitely uh, have the most comprehensive list that I've found out there um, regarding this. But I've, I've done my, my, my work and my research on this throughout the years. And and I feel confident in, in everything that I'm going to tell you today. So uh, we're looking at, uh, one, creation arguments that should definitely not be used, and then two, arguments that are pretty doubtful and, and inadvisable to use. Uh, you know, they might get the job done, but uh, you know, upon further research, uh, if they're probably not true, then I think it's best that we stay away from them. That helps us to maintain our integrity in our discipline, okay? And so that's what we are striving for. Faithfulness to God, of course, first, and then integrity in our discipline. So let's look at a few of these. Um, First on the list is that Darwin recanted on his deathbed. Darwin recanted on his deathbed. Um, as far as as I know, that is just simply not true. Um, that sounds to me like just a, a complete rumor, something that was made up in order to make things sound good. Now, we know Darwin had doubts, okay? there's In fact, there's a whole book uh, written about that called Darwin's Doubt. Um, of course, Darwin had thoughts about what kind of thing it would take to uh, replace his way of thinking. Of course, um, Darwin said that if we found no transitional fossils uh, of, of our organisms moving from one kind of, 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 of species into another, then there was no uh, evidence then for, for evolution as he, as he described it. And, uh, of course, many have come up with things that look like uh, transi- transitional uh, fossils. And, of course, I think that's actually another one of the uh, arguments on this list. Yeah. Uh, what, and in the second list, there are no transitional forms. So we might actually get to talk about that a little bit. Um, but there's not actually any transitional fossils. They are, um, there are things which certainly look like, um, they could be from one to the next. And there are certainly things that, uh, you know, we can see in the species themselves, but at the kind level, we, we never see in the fossil record, one kind of animal turning into another kind of animal. That That's what we do not find. And that is what Darwin is saying that we should 
have found, and we just have not found that. And so Darwin definitely had some doubts. Um, of course, the book I'm reading now, replacing Darwin, the main kind of core argument as to why Darwin should be replaced is that he was commenting on the origin of species, which is a, purely a genetic discipline, and we didn't even know uh, what we needed to know to start talking about that kind of thing until 100 years after Darwin. And so, of course, Dr. Jensen is, is uh, proposing that we go back to the starting board, clear the slate, and start looking at the origin of species based on what we know about genetics and make a new proposal from there. And, of course, um, you can better believe that creation is going to be involved in that. Absolutely. But I think what Dr. Jensen is trying to point out is that if we look at it in light of the new evidence, we're going to see that there are em uh, edges and that there are uh, limits to the changing of a certain kind of of organism. And so that's uh, what, what the book, I think, is going to set out to, to prove. I'm only a few pages into it so far. Um about 45 or so, but, but yeah, it's going to be a good book. We're definitely going to, going to look into that book and probably do a series on it in the future. But, uh, so Darwin recanted on his deathbed. Uh, yeah, I highly doubt that. Okay. Um, I highly doubt that. And it's just probably, uh, just not true. All right. Moon dust thickness proves a young moon. So interestingly enough, I actually wrote about this on my blog and, um, I, I used to use this argument myself and it hasn't even been too long ago, but, uh, you know, I didn't even do my research and, uh, and I'm certainly ashamed of that. Uh, but I went back in and edited my blog and put, I didn't erase it because I want to maintain my integrity, but I put below it, um, an editor's note. And I, I mentioned that we should not use this argument because it is, um, simply not a, an argument for creation. And what I mean by that is it doesn't prove either side. Um, essentially the bottom line is that the calculations were wrong. The crux of the argument, what it's trying to say is that, um, because we expected uh, billions and billions of year old universe when we went to the moon, uh, we were expecting the moon dust to be extremely thick, extremely thick. And so we, we had, I think, even some special equipment and things like that made to handle it um, because that's what we were expecting. But then when we got there, the moon dust was simply not thick and, and it was not thick at all. And it was just fine, no problem. And so I think that creationists started saying, well, hey, wait a minute, look at this, this moon dust, uh, we were expecting bunches, and now we uh, aren't seeing bunches, and so what's going on there? It must be that we have a younger universe than billions of years old, and the fact of the matter is that while that sounds good, it was later found that they simply did their calculations wrong. Just because the universe was billions of years old did not necessarily mean that there was to be that much moon dust on the moon. And again, I don't know the exact mathematical uh, calculations behind that, but essentially um, they were just incorrectly calculated. And so we don't need to use that as an argument for creation because it doesn't prove either way. It was just simply a mathematical mistake. So... Uh, we shouldn't use it. They shouldn't use it. It's not an argument for creation. It's not an argument for millions of years. Uh, it's just not true. So we don't need to worry about that at all. Okay. So moving on to the next NASA computers in calculating the position of planets found a missing day and 40 minutes. Yeah, I've read all about this and it's just simply not true. There's no missing day and 40 minutes. Um, the 
idea behind this, I, if I remember correctly, is to deal with uh, Joshua and the day the sun stood still. You know, we were looking to try to find a, a missing day um, in the chronology of the earth. And it, it, you know, some things that we're we're just we're just fighting a losing battle on, okay? And that is not an argument the creationists should use. As far as I know, there's absolutely no truth to it at all. Um, actually, uh, in reading about this, this is adapted from a science fiction, um, either a novel or a movie, something like that, from from many years ago, perhaps even the 50s and 60s. Uh, there was something wrote about this, and so this argument was resurrected out of that. But it is not true that at any point in time, NASA computers actually found a missing day in 40 minutes. It's not true. The argument should not be used. All right. So that's pretty simple. So how about uh, this next one? Again, regarding NASA, uh, NASA faked the moon landings. Um, this is just simply not true. This is just simply not true. We went to the moon. There are some really, really good people who would have to be, um, denouncing their Christian convictions, lying in a pretty big way um, for NASA to have faked the moon landings and, and get away with it. Um, and, and just not only that, I mean, uh, have you never seen the Mythbusters episode? Mythbusters took care of this. Uh, we definitely landed on the moon, okay? We don't need to... And by the way, I'm not really sure why we would use that argument um, anyway from a creation perspective. I'm not sure what benefit it has to use that, I'm not sure um, how that would somehow discredit um, the evolution sciences and, and the science that, that says that we've been here for millions of years or, or that, that the earth and the universe are, are millions and even billions of years old. Um, I'm not sure how that has anything to do with it. So I just wouldn't even go there. Um, NASA did not fake the moon landings. Quite simply put, that just makes us um, look like, a, a, I don't know, a bunch of flat earthers or something. Okay, and that's quite ironic, although I did that kind of on purpose, uh, because the next argument is that the earth is flat. Um, if you are actually a biblical creationist and you are using the argument that the earth is flat, please stop. The earth is not flat. Uh, again, this is an area where many people, including some extremely um, uh, Christian scientists and people of integrity, uh, there are a lot of people who would have to be telling major, major lies, okay, in order for the earth to be uh, flat. Uh, by the way, if the earth is flat, um, I dare you to go to the edge of it and take a picture, uh, okay? You know, just show me, show me, just take a picture, that, you know, that simple. Uh, just go do it. Um, there are plenty, 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 plenty of arguments against this. Um, the earth is not flat. The reason airplanes can fly the way they do is because the earth is not flat. The reason why you can uh, see uh, certain stars in the night sky from certain places and other places you cannot, um, or other places that you can, uh, is because the earth is not flat. We are on a globe, okay? It's just, it's, quite frankly, it's it's rudimentary uh, that we are on a globe. There are some very, um, there's a lot of work been done on this um, in creationist camps just to disprove this because many people don't realize the history, but there are a lot of people who believe that the Bible teaches that the earth is flat. And most of those people are not Christians. In fact, they started spreading these kind of rumors and arguments to discredit Christians because they were trying to say that Christians and the Bible was saying that the earth is flat. So do your history, 
know your history. The earth is not flat. Please don't use that argument. It hurts our cause. It hurts our case because it's just simply not true. And no informed biblical creationist believes it. I promise. So, um, Get that out of your thinking. The earth is not flat. Please don't use that argument with somebody. It's just not true. Okay, now here's another one. Um, the second law of thermodynamics began at the fall. So this is one that creationists have definitely used um, over the years. There are many who still hold this. As a matter of fact, probably the biggest proponent of it is Dr. Henry Morris from the Institute of Creation Research. Um, he, I think, was probably the first one to come out with this idea, um, and he definitely talked about it in his book, uh, Scientific Creationism. Uh, that is easy to see that he is he was a proponent of this. I'm not sure if, if anyone in that organization still holds to this today, um, but there are a couple factors to consider here. Um, okay, so I definitely think that the effects of the second law of thermodynamics can be seen in the fall. Okay, so I would agree with that. I would agree that this this world is running down. Everything looks like it's running down. There is definitely death, disease, and bloodshed that is occurring now that was not occurring during uh, before the time of the fall. So we can definitely clearly see the effects of the fall um, being um, happening, okay, um, due to the second law of thermodynamics, which, by the way, is the, the law of increasing disorder, the law of entropy. Uh, the law of, the second law of thermodynamics basically says that everything is winding down, uh, that there was a point in time when everything was great, and now everything is winding down. Okay, well, that sounds a lot like the fall, and so a lot of people have attributed that to the fall, but the fact of the matter is, is that the second law of thermodynamics is actually um, very important to certain processes going on. Um, the reason that we can speak, things in our vocal cords actually only work because of entropy. Um, okay, uh, the way that we walk, walking is affected by the law of entropy. Okay, Adam could not have walked in the garden with Jesus Christ, or, um, you know, with God, excuse me, um, had he not been experiencing entropy, so um, which is the second law of thermodynamics. So while I definitely agree that we can see uh, effects in place um, due to the second law of thermodynamics as far as a sin and the fall and all of that goes, um, we should not say that it started at the fall. Um, it's much safer to say that the second law of thermodynamics started right after creation. Uh, God created, he's not creating any longer, and things are now winding down. So I believe that is the most um, faithful position uh, to scripture and also to science. Here's another one. If we evolved from apes, why are there still apes today? Well, that's... Another one that I hear all the time. As a matter of fact, I heard it just last week, I think. Uh, if there are still apes, why are there still apes today? If we, you know, if we evolve from them. Now, the problem is that this is just um, a complete misunderstanding of science. Science does not teach. And when I say science in the broad term, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about mainstream scientists. They do not teach that we evolved from apes. They teach that we evolved from a common ancestor that we and apes evolved from a common ancestor. And so they don't believe that we evolved from apes. We evolved from um, 
something that looked kind of ape, kind of human. And then, of course, you know, we went through all these changes and changes over millions and millions and millions of years. And here we are today. So we have apes on one side, humans on the other. We can still see the commonalities between us. Therefore, we used to be apes. Okay, well... Uh, you know, of course, we could go all day long about this subject, but, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that in many cases, we're only 85% similar to apes. Um, that's what some of the latest research is showing. And so uh, as far as our DNA and genetics and things like that are concerned, of course, we know that we can just as easily talk about things um, from the perspective of the same uh, creator designing us. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with us being a common ancestor, um, that's one way to look at the evidence, for sure. That is definitely one way to look at the evidence, but it's, it, it's not the only way. It's not the only way, and it's not settled science. That's absolutely for sure. So, uh, But the fact of the matter is that we did not evolve from apes, uh, but no scientist claims that we do. So let's not use that argument either. How about this? No new species has been produced. No new species have been produced. Um this is just false, okay? Creationists believe in variation, in speciation. I hate to use this term, but uh, we could use the term microevolution, okay? Um, we b do agree that species change over time. Uh, we, in fact, believe that there was, you know, a representative of the dog family on the ark. Okay, so we have dogs today. I have three dogs today, all right? And those dogs all descended from the dogs that Noah brought onto the ark. I have no problem with that. Creationists have no problem with that. New species are being produced today. Natural selection, variation, um, epigenetics, which I'm writing about next week on my blog, um, there are tons of factors that go into this, okay? And we definitely believe in speciation. Let's not be so crazy as to toss that out. We can observe that. That is observable science. So this argument has a, a, a true version of it, but it's not the version that is being said here. No new species have, are, have been produced. We need to not uh, go there. Okay, what's true is that no new kinds are being produced and that new and that animals can change from one kind into another. Okay, um, coyotes and cats are not related. They are different. One is a canine, one is a feline, okay? Uh, your tabby cat is not related to a coyote in the woods. It's just, it's just not... That is not true. Now, of course, mainstream science says that they are. Of course, they would say that you, uh, me, the cat, the coyote, and the banana are all related. We all share a common ancestor of some sort. So that is their argument, and that is not a true argument. Kinds do not turn into other kinds, but there are new species produced. So let's use that faithfully, and let's get that right in a way that makes sense with science and with scripture, okay? So, let's just uh, use that correctly, all right? Now, um, here's another one. I'm going to try to move a little faster here on some of these. Earth's division in the days of Peleg, Genesis 10:25, refers to the catastrophic splitting of the continents. Um, scripturally speaking, that's just not true. Okay, we can look at the context, we can determine other things uh, about it, and what we see in that is that it's more likely um, referring to the dispersion of human life across uh, the world as a result of 
the Tower of Babel incident when God uh, confounded the languages and and spread us all over the earth. That is what it's talking about, the days of the earth's division. Okay, so how about this? There are gaps in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11, so the earth may be 10,000 years old or even more. This is not true. There is no room in these first chapters of Genesis for any significant gaps of time um, in the genealogies. Okay, we need we can we can look at those and we can we can see pretty clearly uh, the progression. Now, I will say, and I don't know that that what I'm getting ready to say here is in complete disagreement with what I've just read um, in this arguments list, but. If you take and extrapolate out with average generation times in the only places that genealogies could go there, the max uh, age that you get is just shy of 10,000 years. Now, based on the genealogies we have, I believe we're only looking at an earth that's a little over 6,000 years old, okay? Um, I don't believe we're even near the 10,000 point. But I have used this argumentation to say that even if we did place um, errors or, 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 or made some room in these genealogies uh, to account for any gaps that could have been there, we're still only looking at around 10,000 years. So I have argued from it from that perspective, which I think is still faithful uh, to do that. I would not say that we could argue that there are gaps in genealogies um, because we just uh, simply can't make that argument. We cannot say for sure, but there are gaps based on what we see in the text. We could say that, well, even if there was, these are the places where it's possible uh, due to the grandfather gap and things like that. And um, But even so, we would only be looking at an earth around 10,000 years old. Okay, so we can, we can go that route, but uh, I wouldn't use that argument. Okay, so light was created in transit. This is another one that I believe Dr. Henry Morris was fond of. Um, in current day speaking, I think Dr. Kurt Wise is um, the proponent of, of this idea. And basically what this is saying is that uh, the light that we see from distant starlight, of course we know there's a distant starlight problem uh, that we... Uh, young earth creationists uh, face. Of course, there's also a distant starlight problem that uh, the Big Bang proponents face, which is called the horizon problem. I encourage you to look that up sometime. But the light created in transit problem uh, basically says that, or a solution rather, kind of says that God uh, created the light of things that we appear to see. And so we don't actually see those things happening. We just see the lights Um and so that allows us to to make sense of the fact that stars are light years away. Now, there are different problems with this, uh, you know, of course, scientifically. But, you know, for me, this problem has to do with the nature and the character of God. Essentially, from an astronomical standpoint... This means that we would have to be seeing things that never actually happened. We would have to be seeing the supernova of stars, the the explosion of stars that never actually happened. It just looks like it happened. And I think that betrays the character of God. Now remember, remember that light travel, when we talk about this star is so many light years away, we're talking about a measure of distance, not time. It's actually a measure of distance, not time. Yes, it would take us that long to travel there, and so it's time in that regard, 
but it is a measure of distance, okay? That's exactly what we're talking about. So there are multiple solutions um, that have been proposed. This is one of those solutions, but I just don't think it's satisfactory. Probably the three that I find most satisfactory, just real quick, are... Um, Humphrey's gravitational time dilation. Okay, now that basically says that time moves differently where we are as a result of where it would be moving out in space. And so while only minutes have passed here, um, millions of years might have passed out there. Um, I don't agree with that because I tend to look at the... Uh, distant starlight problem as as if I was Adam, okay, not as if I'm Steve. And if I'm Adam 6,000 years ago, then I'm going to be needing to see the light from the stars right then because God says that the reason the stars were created was to give light upon the earth, okay? And so that's why God did that. And so, you know, are they accomplishing their purpose right then? So I don't think gravitational time dilation solves that problem. Um the two that I like, um, I haven't decided which I like more yet, but one is proposed by Dr. Jason Lyle, and it's the anisotropic synchrony convention. And it basically says that we measure the speed of light as a convention um, because we have to. And so we just kind of assume that the speed of light is what it is and that it moves equally in both directions. But there is no reason we have to assume that. That's just simply something that we see. It could be possible that the light travels at the speed of light in one way, but it's instantaneous coming back the other way. We don't know and we can't measure, and it's a very complicated argument that I cannot go into right now, um, but we literally cannot know the one-way speed of light. It's impossible to know. So while it could be that light um, appears millions of years, you know, uh, excuse me, appears light years and light years and light years away going one direction, it could be that the light appeared to us instantaneously, okay? So that, that that's not a problem at all, all right? Um, and, but I got to move on, but, but the last thought is Dr. Danny Faulkner's explanation, which is not, uh, admittedly, and he admits this, it's not extremely scientific, and it does have problems, um, but it's very faithful to Scripture. Of course, we tend to uh, look at the first few days of creation and, and discount the miraculous nature of it, but it was a miracle, what God did was a miracle, and the way that the text works, uh, looking at the languages and everything in, in, in Genesis 1, Dr. Faulkner argues that if we were to have been on earth to see that, what we might see would look something like a time-lapse video. We might see something like trees and plants just sprouting out of the earth very, very quickly and rapidly. Um, and these systems forming literally right before the very eyes of anyone who was beholding it. And so he argues that that is the nature of creation. Why then, when we look at the distant starlight problem, do we treat it differently? He simply proposes that God simply just stretched the light there and just simply brought the light to earth. He placed the heavenly bodies where he wanted to and simply brought the light to earth and as a Christian, as a biblicist, um, the theologian in me really, really likes um, that definition. Is it the most scientific? Um, no. Can it be proven scientifically uh, right now at least? Uh, no, it, it cannot. Will it ever? Well, possibly. Dr. Faulkner argues that, you know, that's why we need more creation astronomers. Uh, maybe the next one to come along, the next generation can um, go a long way towards towards showing how that works. And, uh, but simply put... 
creation was of a miraculous nature, and so it just might simply have been that way in this case. Okay, moving on. Geocentrism, in the classical sense of taking the earth as an absolute reference frame, is taught by scripture, and heliocentrism is anti-scriptural. Well, uh, of course, this is not true. This also has to do with um, the idea of uh, Joshua and the day the sun stood still, and you know, how do we look at you know things? Does the earth really revolve around the sun? Is the, you know, um, the bottom line is this: is that the Bible uses what is called phenomenological language. That's a big word, phenomenological language, and all it simply means is that when you're when you're viewing something from uh, the standpoint of where you are, the correct and most scientific way, actually, to talk about that is as if you are the absolute reference frame, okay? Um, you have to be the reference frame. And so the Bible often talks about things happening that don't really uh, make sense, especially if you look at them scientifically. But if you just think about the fact that it happened and the person who observed it was describing it from what they could see, then it totally makes sense. Um this is also what happens when we see things like it repented God, you know, God repented to do something. Well, I would argue that the person uh, looking at it, it might have looked like God repented and changed his mind and changed his ways. And so it was recorded in that way. But we know that God um, does things according to his own will. His purposes are being accomplished and he knows the end from the beginning. Okay. And so there are definitely times in the Bible where we see something written from the standpoint of the beholder. And that is certainly the case here. Um, Lastly, in my list here, I want to look at the canopy theory, the canopy theory. Um, this one's interesting. There are still many people who argue from this position today. And this is another one of Dr. Morris's um, uh, babies, if you'll say. He definitely, uh, I think, made this position popular, the canopy theory. Uh, there is... Um, of, there are a few who argue that in the old Jewish literature, they argue that there was a canopy around the earth about two to three fingers fit, uh, thick. And there are multiple um, lines of argumentation used around this that would help explain things like where the um, where the fountains came from. No, excuse me, not the fountains, but the, the windows of heaven when they were opened and the you know, during the flood year. Uh, what they say is that there was a canopy of ice about two to three layer, fingers uh, thick that was surrounding the entire globe and that that has now crashed. And what they attempt to say is that, well, there was obviously a different ecology before the flood, which I believe we would agree is true. Um, there is evidence in the fossil record of giant insects, of giant versions of animals that we have today. And they attempt to explain that, you know, the oxygen levels and the ozone levels were completely different and things like that before the flood. And so this canopy around the earth would kind of be a part of that. Um, this is not the most unscientific explanation, but m almost every creation scientist has abandoned it. And the reason why is because it has never been solved um, 
One problem with the canopy theory that has never been solved is the amount of heat levels and radiation that would have to be on the Earth as a result of this. It would be kind of like a greenhouse effect, and it would be so hot on Earth that, as far as we know, nothing would be able to live, okay? It would, we're talking about outrageous and astronomical amounts of heat, and nobody has been able to solve that portion of the problem yet, and for that reason alone, many creation scientists have completely abandoned the canopy theory. Um, there are... Uh, in both the hydroplate theory and which I, I don't necessarily support, but in both the hydroplate theory and in the um, um, catastrophic plate tectonics theory, there are explanations for the windows of heaven in the flood. And I think it's just real easy to see that uh, the canopy theory is not necessary to any kind of flood model. It's not necessary to scripture. Scripture doesn't necessarily teach it. There's some things in the languages when we talk about the firmament, the rakia, as to what that could mean. Some people argue that that is talking about the canopy of ice um, around the earth. We... But you don't have to accept that interpretation of it. There are other ways to explain that. Dr. Danny Faulkner actually does a great job of explaining that. So I encourage you to check that out sometime. Uh, but, but canopy theory uh, should not be used because we just don't know how to solve the problem of the heat levels that would be on the surface of the Earth. Very quickly, okay, very quickly, those are the arguments that should definitely not be used. Um I want to spend just a couple minutes talking about arguments that are doubtful, why they're doubtful and um, inadvisable to use. Just a few of the ones that I kept uh, from this article that I read, okay? So, um, there was no rain before the flood. Uh, the Bible does not explicitly teach that, um, and it's doubtful that it was the case. Certain animals and certain environments depend on rain. Um, there is room for it in scriptural interpretation, but it's you know, not likely um, that there was no rain at all before the flood. So I would um, potentially leave that out. Okay, um, evolution is just a theory. Okay, <laughs> evolution is just a theory. I hear this all the time. And the response from the professors is usually something like this. Well, gravity is a theory. Have you ever heard of the theory of gravity, okay? And so when they speak about evolution as a theory, they are actually talking about evolution as if it is some kind of law. And when we say things like evolution is just a theory, it kind of makes us sound like we don't know anything about science because a theory in the scientific term is a big deal. Okay, it's a big deal. Um, so we don't want to use that terminology. In fact, I, I, I try not to refer to the theory of evolution. Um, you know, I, I try to use different language, you know, even the myth of evolution, you know, even the, the idea of evolution, just something different. We don't want to give it uh, unnecessary ground because we really don't believe that evolution is the same thing as gravity, okay? It, in fact, it, it's just not. There is no observable science which says that we should think in those terms. So um, evolution... It's not just a theory. We don't want to use that argumentation because that's not how they see it. Uh, we just need to talk about it completely differently. Um, laminate. Okay, laminate. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. Um, it's a uh, it's a little film called um, possibly uh, Indescribable. No, I don't think that's it. 
Um, it was based on a Chris Tomlin song. Louis Giglio uh, did this video, and you can see it. Uh, oh, How Great Is Our God? That's it. Excuse me. How Great Is Our God is what it's called. And it's this video. is done in the church, and uh, it talks about astronomy and things like that. It really is a cool video. It shows about how... Um, you know, there are, uh, you know, things that should be attributed to God in the sciences. Okay. And I support that. Of course, that's why I do this podcast. One of the things in that video is it ends out with a, uh, molecule called laminin called laminin. Okay. And it's something that's found in our body and it's actually this, um, molecule that literally holds all of us together okay it's this molecule that it, it's a binding agent and what it does it 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 holds us uh, together it holds our cells together it holds our, our bodies together and so that's what this thing called laminin does and if you look at laminin underneath of a microscope People argue, and if you look up, at, more importantly, if you look up Wikipedia, if you look up pictures of it online, if you type in laminin, you are going to find a picture of, that looks exactly like a cross. It looks just exactly like a cross, like Jesus would have died on, okay? And so uh, people say, well, look, Jesus is holding us together. Uh, the cross proves it. It's in there. Okay, so y you can use that if you want to. It, it's cool, but here's the thing about it. Number one, if you actually look at laminin in the microscope, it hardly ever looks like a perfect cross. That is just simply an artistic rendering of it. That's what we identify it as far as to look at when we're talking about scientific literature. But uh, in re reality, it doesn't look like some kind of perfect cross. It actually it doesn't look like that at all. It's, you know, twisted and bent. And, you know, in real life, it doesn't really look like that. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think we should necessarily be using that line of argumentation um, from that perspective. There's just no reason to assume that that that's necessarily the case. Now, of course, we realize that, that uh, you know, God created us. And, of course, you know, we're being held together. Uh, of course, there is a uh, chemical agent which does that. And it's called laminin. And it might be shaped like a cross sometimes. And so we might can use that as just uh, some kind of a cool testament to creation, but we certainly should not use that as some kind of argument um, for a creator, okay? that That's not that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, laminin is not an argument for a creator. It's simply something very cool that we Christians can certainly uh, marvel at the wonder uh, of God's creation. We can certainly use it for those purposes, but not as an argument for creation, okay? Um, another one, the speed of light has decreased over time. Um very, very doubtful. Very, very doubtful. Uh, there have been experiments done that showed a variation of the speed of light, uh, but and I can't remember the name of it, but it's a certain kind of the speed of light, okay? Um, the, the speed of light that we refer to when we're talking about distance between us and other stars and planets is constant. As far as we know, it has not decreased. It has not been shown to even be able to vary, okay? So, that is not a good argument. And again, we dealt with that a few minutes ago in depth. So let's not use that. Uh, we talked a while ago about there are no transitional forms. Um, it's doubtful because there are things that we can look at and we can see that do appear to be transitional forms. There may even be transitional forms from species to species, okay? Um, we certainly could argue that if we're looking at a few of Darwin's finches, we may be able to even put our eyes on one fence 
another finch, and then uh, the form in between those two finches. So there are transitional forms as it relates to species. We definitely see that. But there is no evidence of a giraffe turning into a donkey. Okay, there is no evidence of a banana turning into a chimp. All right, um, there. You know, we need to properly define what we're talking about when, when looking at um, transitional forms. Two more things: uh, plate tectonics is fallacious. That is a very doubtful argument. As a matter of fact. Um, Science has done a lot of, of work in that area. Creation scientists have done a lot of work in that area and came up with uh, probably the most accepted model, which is catastrophic plate tectonics, rather than the slow-moving uniformitarian plate tectonics that mainstream science teaches. We do believe plate tectonics is scientific. Um, many of us do. And, of course, we just believe that it was a catastrophic, rapid event and simply not a slow one. And the last one, before we end out for today, is that creationists believe in microevolution but not macroevolution. We don't need to argue from that standpoint because I think it's giving a little bit too much leeway to the evolutionist, okay? What they say is that well, if you believe in microevolution, you believe in macroevolution. Because they think it's just one moving to the other. But that's not really the case. Microevolution is best described as speciation, variation, natural selection. And what we find is information mutating or, or leaving. But we don't find new information being added into the genetic code, which is what would have to happen in order for macroevolution to take place. So I tend to not use microevolution at all speciation, variation, natural selection. I use words like that, but they do not add new genetic material to an organism that would allow for um, a, a common ancestor of humans and chimps to turn into a human or a chimp or, uh, you know, a banana or something. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm using uh, facetious, almost outrageous examples, but this is what they actually believe. So we need to just be careful to define our terms and not get caught into their trap. Because if they try to tell you that you believe in macroevolution, therefore you believe in macroevolution just over a long period of time, that is not true. So don't let them wrap you up in two that. So creation arguments you should probably stop considering. You know, I mean, this is the thing. There are good arguments for creation. There are good models being built for creation, all right? Um, there are certainly good scientific positions that we can take which clearly show that mainstream science has got it wrong in many, many areas. But let's do it in a way that is faithful to science and also faithful to scripture. God created this world. It works in an orderly way. It works in a way that makes sense with what he has revealed to us in scripture. And so we need to be faithful to that and use those arguments in a way that God would be pleased with and that uh, leaves us having the utmost integrity when uh, fighting this good fight of faith. Okay, thank you so much for joining me this week on the Creation Academy. Once again, we'll be back next week. We've got two more series, uh, two more lessons to go in our current series about the basics of creation science. And then we're going to talk about some things, um, uh, some different things, some different areas. Upcoming soon, I want to do a little bit of a review of my time. I just got back from the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter in Northern Kentucky. And, um, Oh boy, <laughs> man, that was great. Um, I, I could I could take forever talking about it, but you know the psalmist said, "What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that uh, thou visitest him?" That's in Psalm eight, and I think that perfectly sums up 
my experience at the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks just because uh, I want to talk about it with somebody. So thanks for hanging out with me. I know this has been a long episode and uh, this is not typical, but I really wanted to go through these things because I feel that it's important. If we're going to be arguing for creation, we must do it in a way that is faithful to God and faithful to science. So let's close out with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we certainly do love you. We're thankful that you would just allow us to study your word, study your world, and to gain an even deeper appreciation and understanding of you. Thank you, Father, for being so good to us and for... um, creating us and for sending us your son to die on a cross, Lord, that one day we might get to live in heaven forever eternally with you. We thank you for that gift of righteousness, Lord, that you've given us and made possible through Jesus Christ. And in your name, we do pray. Amen. Thank you so much again for joining me this week on the Creation Academy. Hope everybody has a great week and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.